Rockets and Dan, episode 23. We are very confused on what to do because we don't know what the Bills and Titans are doing, but we have a lot of other things we can get to. Yeah, I thought we were going to hit this perfectly. You know, yesterday we were going to do some Bills talk. I said it should break by Thursday morning on what's going on on Sunday, uh, but hey, we're still here, sitting here 3.45 p.m., with no news, hopefully by the time we're done recording, we got some. Uh, we have a little bit of an update here for you. Before we get into that, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a huge kickball game oh. that will be taking place in less than two hours. Kick Astley versus Team Meat Locker. You know, they talk about Yankees, Red Sox. They talk about Duke, North Carolina. There is not a bigger rivalry in sports than the... Um, What's the league called? The Kickball League. The Kickball League. Go Flingo. The Go Flingo Kickball League rivalry between Kick Astley and Team Meat Locker. They've only met once, and if you log into ESPN Instant Classics, it's the first one that pops up. It was an extra inning win for Kick Astley. Hannon broke his pinky in the game. It was just an absolute bloodbath. But we get round two tonight. Hey, it's a handicapped kick-assly team. You heard it here first. Uh, you know, they're playing down a few men and women. Uh, so the lines have shifted quite considerably, and Team Meat Locker is favored, may I say, heavily. Well, what happens is they're just a more mature group because the reasons they're missing are quarantining to see a niece. They, what two people or a couple on the team got pregnant. Um, and then you have... Arguably their best player that was too much of a girl to try to come back this year. And he moved to South Carolina, and he's just a weak-minded human, and he left because uh, he's afraid of the, t- the team that Team Meat Locker built in the offseason. So, again, this is g- if we lose tonight, this will be a heck of a recording to play on loop through the offseason. But, uh, but Dan, 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 and, 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 and best of luck, and I think you have a good chance to win, and, and you've been preparing for this the right way. And by doing that, that is because I am the worst kickball player I know, so I just surround myself with unbelievable talent. Hey. And this team is absolutely loaded from top to bottom. But let me tell you about this show. I hope we didn't dive too far without hitting the big, big parts of this show. Two huge interviews. Number one, Scott Wheeler of The Athletic talking about the Sabres NHL draft. He recaps it. Talks about all six players that we drafted, and he did a fantastic job. If you want an NHL draft guy, I think he's the best in the world. I really do. He's been on the show before, and it's just awesome that a big-time national guy comes on Little Time 716 show like this um, and, and, and comes and gives us really good insight. And, and you're Speaking be, of big time. Speaking of big time, we have a huge interview, a Stanley Cup champion from just a couple weeks ago. That's Derek Lalonde. That's the assistant coach of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Yes, potentially our biggest interview ever, a Stanley Cup champion. He's also a Cortland Red Dragon, so he gave us about a half hour of his time um, to talk about the year it was, the bubble, winning a Stanley Cup, and all about the process, what got him there, his coaching career, and even his time back in Cortland. Yeah, it really is an awesome interview. I mean, we talk about raising the dollar pints on Wednesdays at Woody's Pub all the way to raising the Stanley Cup just a few days ago. An awesome, awesome interview. And speaking of Stanley Cup, I got a little bit of a breaking news story here. Three-time Stanley Cup champion Justin Williams of the Carolina Hurricanes just announced his retirement from hockey. He was always a great get NHL the video game if you wanted to add some veteran presence on the third yep, line. Yep, yep. All right, let's talk about this NFL situation because I we the NFL is in a very tough spot. The Titans continue to test positive, putting this Bills Titans game in jeopardy. Let's go through some scenarios here. What are your thoughts on a forfeit win for the Bills? I was about to just drop one more huge NHL bomb. Cliff Poo on the move again from he goes from Florida Panthers to the Carolina or to the Columbus Blue Jackets. Yes, you heard it here first. Former Saber great Cliff Poo has been traded again. Some would say that trade stinks. <laughs> so yeah, getting into football, right. um, Dan. I don't know what to think. I mean, you know, I thought about this today. I'm like, man, I am. I have way too much. I have way bigger fish to fry than think about all these different scenarios that can play out. Then I'm like, well, I really don't. I'm also the guy who spends hours at a time doing mock drafts for the Bills. Yep. So, so I really can't speak out of both sides of my mouth. But really, you know, I haven't thought too much about it because I can't control it. And I control the controllables, Dan. All right. 
I don't really know what that means, but I'm going to say this. I started on the on the side of that it's impossible for the NFL to give a forfeit win to somebody, and I still would be surprised. I think they're going to do their best to try to reschedule it for possibly Monday and then move the Chiefs-Bills game. This is what's going to happen with the NFL, and maybe the NFL could be smart and just try to incorporate a safety week in Week 18 because this will not be this will not be the last time this happens to an NFL team where they're forced to reschedule games. And I know that stinks, and I know it's tough. And I mentioned this to our, our good friend and uh, fan of the show. We'll see if he actually listens. He, he threatened not to listen earlier. He's one of six people that uh, <laughs> listen every week. It's but like dropping like 15% of yeah, our total. Dan Muscarella. And we, it was a very contentious argument we had through text because we're both big uh, keyboard tough guys. I made sure to make a phone call after class. We calmly talked about it like adults. And the thing that he mentioned was, so my point was, how about they build it in? And then his point was, well, how about, I mean, then the Bills are forced to play an extra week while everybody else gets a bye week. I said, all right, well, then do a bye week for everybody after that 18th week. And he said, okay, that's fine. Now the Chiefs are not playing for three weeks, even though the first seed, which is also a very good point. So I'm not, they don't pay me enough to make these decisions. Nobody's, it's just like politics. Nobody's going to be happy with whatever they choose. I, I, everybody should be pissed at the Titans. Screw them. The yeah. secret practices, the fact that they weren't wearing the bands for tracing and whatnot, they're making a mockery of this. The fact that they were going after the reporter on Twitter is also laughable. So the one way, the one reason I would want to play this game is so we can just beat the hell out of them and shut them up. But I just don't see it happening. I don't even see it happening on Monday, to be honest. I don't either. I mean, and do you want them to play? That's, that's, that's the bigger, my biggest that's, thing. Yes, I don't know I if I want that. them to go. That's a bigger concern. And, you know, potentially put themselves at risk because testing is not exact and there's a lot of things that go into it. Not to mention the Bills are banged up right now. No Very Milano. Trey up. White hasn't practiced in two days. John Brown got hurt. John Brown got hurt today. Their offensive line, they're trying to bring Feliciano back, but Ford's been limited practice. I mean, it would not be a bad time possibly for a bye week here. I don't know. It depends on what happens on later in the year, but... And also, then you have to think of, does that mean that the Steelers game becomes a forfeit win as well? I don't know. Right. Let's talk NBA Finals, Dan, and maybe get back to football if we hear some breaking news before we stop recording. So, Lakers go up 2-zip. Jimmy Butler steals Game 3, but they fall short in Game 4. It was a good game. We got game, So, it's 3-1 LA. Dan, does it end on Friday night? Does LeBron get another title? No, I think I think they stretch it one more. I don't know if uh, Gragic... Goran Dragic, okay, Goran Dragic. I think I nailed it there. Yeah, you're good. Comes back. Um, it's just like I just it's so annoying because I don't like LeBron. So like, I'm obviously very biased, and it's a team sport. So there's no reason I should not like him. Like everyone can look at Ray Allen literally saving him that one year when Bosch tips it out. Like, and then like, how about? Catavius Caldwell Pope yeah, having that one too. a monster game the other day, and obviously, like in the laurels of history, that'll be end up being forgotten. It'll just be LeBron winning another title. He's a freak. He's the most talented player. I will say he's the most talented player to ever step on a court. I will not say he's the best player, but what do I know? How much Jordan footage have I watched? I watched <laughs> the documentary that was made by him, so I don't know. Episode three, if you want to learn more about it. Yeah, but I um I hope they can stretch it out. There's just no shot they end up winning it, so it's just delaying the inevitable. And I hope that this always gets looked at with an asterisk because I don't like LeBron. Yeah, I mean, overall, I think the bubble's been very successful, and I think any NBA championship that gets delivered over the next couple of weeks is certainly well-deserved. And, and you think about, you know, and, I, and you're going to hear about more of that in the Derek Lalonde interview, how, yeah, I mean, these guys are making a lot of money, but everyone said this a million times, but this is kind of just moot. But, I mean, it's not super easy being in the bubble like this for this long period of time. I mean, Dan... Feels like forever ago when the bubble started. Remember really like the does. Phoenix Suns and the Devin Booker show for six straight games. It's it's been a long time. So I think this championship is well deserved. And Derek Lalonde kind of gets into that in his interview when he talks about how it potentially was the hardest championship ever in the history of that sport. Absolutely. Before we get to that, let's talk a little MLB playoffs. Buckets and I have not watched much, but I will say this. The Yankees on the ropes is such a sweet thing to watch, especially against the Rays, who are playing the Yankees. The Yankees have the highest payroll this year. The Rays have the third lowest, and they just look like the better team overall. I thought it was hilarious that they tried out-raising the Rays the other day by going with a starter and taking him out shortly, then bringing in somebody else. They looked very foolish in the game two loss. They lose game three. Now they're on the ropes in this short five-game series. Yeah, and it sticks to whoever has the under. 
Okay, thank you. And Dan, I got a question for you. Sure, shoot. Let's get into hockey a little bit. Hockey. Let's talk a little hockey. I got a question for you. Okay. All right, Dan. The Sabres draft just happened. Okay. They added a couple pieces to the puzzle, if you may. But Dan, they've had a goaltending issue for quite a while. And I'm going to give you a list. There is some very, very good NHL goalies right now in free agency and unrestricted free agency. So you're the GM right now for the next 30 seconds. And I apologize to our fans for, and, and to Dan for going off the rails here. But I had to get this in. Dan, you got to choose. Give me a 1A, 1B on these five. Ready? Jacob Markstrom, Braden Holpe, Anton Kudobin, Corey Crawford, Henrik Lundqvist. Can I just see the list? I, Markstrom's going to want too much money, so I don't want Markstrom. I don't want Holtby, same thing. I don't want Lundqvist. I would go with other because that's the sixth option here, but I, it depends. I would like depending on the price and the, the long – or excuse me, the term. I know he's a little older in the tooth, but if you got if we're trying to just save some time before Pekalukadin comes up, and then Crawford I would be in favor of. I think Crawford had a bounce-back year. I think he's a veteran guy, again, that's one – a bunch in his career. So I would go with Crawford, number one, Kudoba, number two. I would actually, like I've said from the beginning, prefer for them to trade for either Corpusalo or Merzlikas from Columbus. Okay, thank you very much. Now, thank you for that. If we're already talking hockey, we don't even have to worry about the rest of the MLB playoffs. Dodgers look unbeatable. Braves are rolling. Astros on their revenge tour. Oh, I want to clarify something. I was called out in a text group that I said that I'm rooting for the Astros because um, – I forget what my reasoning was. Let me clarify what I meant by that. Every sport should have a villain. Right now, they're the villain. It's fun when you don't actually hate that team, like if you're the Yankees or Dodgers, when the villain is kind of successful. Like, I'm sure for other teams, it was kind of fun watching the Patriots for their little run. Obviously, as a Bills fan, it was miserable. I will say that I am not actively rooting for the Astros, but number one, I do want the Mets to sign George Springer in the offseason. And number two, I'm now completely off the Astros bandwagon because they were such dorks when they got called out the other day for they were rumored to be using this as like a tactic. They want to go through the same teams that have been bashing them, like the A's they got in a fight with and the Yankees who have been on Twitter wars with them. And then they immediately backed up saying, no, we're just playing our game, blah, blah. If you're going to be the villain, embrace being the villain. So I'm off the Astros bandwagon. Um, let's talk some NHL draft with Scott Wheeler like we talked about. The Sabres ended up passing on two guys that were universally more liked than the one they picked, Jack Quinn. So do you have any faith in this organization, I don't have any faith in this organization. Even watching their embedded show, it just seems, and of course the pandemic plays a huge thing in this, but I did some research the other night. I probably went to about 15 team websites, Dan, and, and looked up each team's staff, okay? So I'm looking at the amount of scouts and the amount of front office personnel that each team has. And I would say on average, the Sabres had about half to two-thirds the amount in comparison than any other NHL team. This is a skeleton staff they're working with. I have zero faith in Kevin Adams. I have zero faith in the front office as a whole. What have they, they, you know, they've made one good trade so far. I don't have faith in their drafting abilities. I am to the point where I think that they moved up in the second round to draft and trade a fourth round pick so they don't have to pay the expenses to fly this guy into Buffalo and pay this young kid and give him equipment. That's how poor I think the Pagulas are. And I really think it's that bad. And, Dan, yeah, I disagree with the move. But my only saving grace, and I know it's weird to compare football and hockey, but I I felt similar to how, and I have way less knowledge in hockey. I watched zero of these guys. But it felt like the the Bills taking Josh Allen, and everyone said, your guy Rosen was on the board, and and you missed him. And, you know, there's, for, for what, I'm not, denying Jack Quinn. I think he could be a good hockey player. He scored over 50 goals in the OHL last year, and maybe he's just starting to develop as a really good player. So there is potential, um, but I just I don't have faith in this organization. That summed up pretty well. Let's send it over to Scott Wheeler. Here we go! Hello out there. We're on the air. It's hockey night tonight. Tension grows, the whistle blows, and the puck goes down the ice. The goalie jumps and the players bump, and the fans all go insane. 
someone roars, Bobby scores at the good old hockey game. Oh, the good old hockey game. Is the we now welcome back on as our first reoccurring guest. He covered this past week's NHL draft for the Athletics, Scott Wheeler. Scott, I can't imagine how busy you are. So first off, thank you for making time for us. Yeah, no problem. It's been a crazy couple of days. I'm, I'm a little bit happy at this point that it's in the rearview mirror, and now it's time to take a couple of days off and relax. Yeah, Scott, Bucket's here. You know, before we get to the draft, I just kind of want to hit on that. As a guy who has such a passion for it, and it's been such a hectic, and it was such a long day too, just, is it mm-hmm. kind of a relief now, or is it kind of uh, is it sad that it's in the rearview mirror? Uh, it's a little bit of both. It's bittersweet whenever you've spent as much time as I did preparing for this draft class and speaking to these kids and traveling around North America and parts of Europe to see them play. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's been a busy sort of year and a long year. And and I've worked, I've probably dedicated more hours specifically to this draft class than any draft class I've ever covered. This was my seventh year kind of covering the draft full time here. And um, I, I haven't been as thorough or as detailed with the draft class as I was with this one. So that part of it is kind of bittersweet because I'm not sure I'll ever have the kind of time that this year afforded me to, mm-hmm. to dive in on a draft class like this one. Um, but looking forward to turning the page, focusing on the 2021 class and, and beginning to get the ball rolling on some, some newer, fresher kids. Yeah, Scott, your coverage on The Athletic was unbelievable. But when I asked you to join the show last week, I ended our conversation with a text saying, hopefully the Sabres do not screw this up. And they go ahead and take Jack Quinn at 8. And if you are fans of the analytics community here in Buffalo, we follow a bunch of them on Twitter. And then, of course, with the draft comes every local Twitter draft expert who's never watched a second of any of these prospects. They decide to chime in with their opinions. And everybody's just ripping the pick apart. So before we get to Quinn, and you mentioned that it was a reach in your post-draft article – what do you think the Sabres missed out on in Cole Perfetti and Marco Rossi, who went the following two selections? Well, I think they missed out on two sort of first-line potential star players. I think Cole Perfetti is the smartest, most intelligent, both on and off the ice player in this draft class. You can see it in the way he articulates himself as a kid, and you can definitely see it in the way he, he reads the game, he watches the game, he anticipates the play in front of him before defenders and oftentimes even his, his line mates and his own coaches do. He's just a special kid and a special player and a kid who I think was one of the best picks of the draft to the Winnipeg Jets at 10th overall. They got a kid who I really do believe has a chance to be a point-per-game player at the top of his ceiling and throughout his prime in the NHL. And This was a very deep draft class. I believe that there were six or seven players in this draft class, especially at forward, who have the chance to be truly great players, the kinds of players that you would typically take in a top three or a top four. Um, so it was depth. There was depth at the top at forward, and Cole was right in that mix, and certainly Marco was too. I, Mar- Marco's the kid I know the best in this draft in terms of knowing him personally. I uh, billeted with him and his family and actually sort of did an immersive embedded story with them about a year and a half ago now and really got to know him and what he's all about and where he comes from. And He's a special, special, special player. He's one of those kids who can do everything. He's the best defensive forward in the draft. He's going to be one of the best face-off players in the NHL. He's going to be able to penalty kill. He's going to be able to play late defensive zone situations and tough matchups. And then he's also got maybe a cut below offensively, the, the kind of skill that a Cole Perfetti has. But he's got the chance to be a 70-point player in the NHL. He's got the chance to be a first-line center and to really make everyone else around him better and to drive a line as a playmaker and as a puck handler. So both of those kids, I think, are phenomenal players. They were three and four on my board, respectively, and I thought they were the two best picks of the draft. So um, I do think there was a bit of a missed opportunity there before we get into Quinn. All righty. Well, thank you for sinking us deep into our depression. So do me a favor. Pull us out of it, because if, if you read the analysis around here, most of it was praising those two and not and making sure to not necessarily you know bash Jack Quinn. They don't want to do that. So it seemed like the number one thing missing in this organization coming in was scoring a, scoring from the wing. So tell us why the Sabres got that guy to fill that need. Well, there's no question that Quinn is a great prospect. He was kind of 13th, 14th, 15th on my board through, throughout the sort of tail end of last season and into the summer as I put together my, my final draft rankings and all of that. So he, he's a top of the first, top of the first round, sorry, kind of flair. I think he's one of the best finishers in the draft. 
He has learned to play a lot more aggressively with the puck on his stick as a puck handler so that he's not just a catch-and-shoot player. So he can drive play at a higher level now. He's a late-blooming player who played double-A growing up and, and wasn't really a top prospect and has come into his own on a much steeper trajectory than a lot of these other kids, which makes you believe that, or makes me believe at least, that I, I think that he's just getting started. He's got room to get stronger and fill out physically. I know he's worked very, very hard in the gym this summer in, in the Ottawa Valley in, in eastern Ontario here. Um, he, he's, he's a great player. There's detail to his game. He's excellent off the puck. I just don't think that he has the kind of flash and high-impact upside that some of those other kids have. If Jack Quinn becomes the best version of Jack Quinn, he's probably a 30-goal scorer, which is still a very good player and a worthwhile top-10 pick. But I think the other players have a, have a higher ceiling and a chance to be really a number one or a number two player on their team. And I'm not sure that, that Jack Quinn's going to do that. I'm not sure he's going to be a better player than than Dylan Cousins, and he's certainly not going to be ever be a better player than Jack Eichel. So he feels like the kind of player who's, who can play with those types and excel with those types and help you out on the power play and all of that, but he wouldn't have been my choice there, if I'm being honest. Yeah, no, we love the honesty, and, and you kind of just nailed that what his ceiling would be, but I would like to ask, and I guess you can make an argument for the Sabres case, and I think that at least what they'll tell their fans is, you know, he's re he really exploded last year, and he probably wouldn't have even have been a top two-round pick if he went out the year before. So maybe his development is just beginning. So I'd like to ask you, how many years away do you think that Quinn could be away from playing in the NHL, and maybe he could be potentially Eichel's winger in a few years? Well, he's in an interesting spot because he's a little bit on the older side of this draft class. He's already 19 years old. He's one of the older players. And that means that after this season, assuming that the OHL can, can sort of have a full season, which isn't even a guarantee at this point, after this season, he's probably going to be in a sticky situation where suddenly he's 20 years old. He could go back for one more season in the OHL, but he probably shouldn't. And then it's a tough decision because he will still only have OHL or NHL eligibility. He won't be able to play in the AHL. So I think there's a chance that at the start of the 2021-2022 season, they're in a tough spot and they have to give him a real opportunity to make the roster to play those quote-unquote nine games that all of the kids play out of the gate in the NHL to see whether they can make it before they burn a year of their ELCs, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that's the realistic outcome. He spends another year in the OHL, Maybe he plays professionally somewhere if the OHL doesn't come back like everyone's expecting it to come back. And then you, uh, about a year from now, you reassess and you give him a real opportunity in camp to make the team. Scott, in the second round, the Sabres moved up and drafted John Jason Paterka, a German winger with ties to Coach Kruger, hopefully ties to Dominic Cahoon if they can re-sign him. And there are rumors that they actually want to trade back in the first to grab him. What do you think of this selection? Uh, I don't know. It, oh, come it, on. It, <laughs> it's it's tough. I, I, they the job that they did in rounds sort of two through seven felt like a mix a mixed bag to me. I like Paterka. He's a driven, sort of hardworking, tenacious player. He never stops sort of moving. He attacks in waves. He can get to the front of the net. It was a fine pick in that range. I, I, I don't love him as a player. I think he's probably more of an energy guy in, at, at the sort of NHL level once he makes it. But he does have a lot of pro qualities to his game. He's got a, a, a number of, of sort of attributes in terms of his physicality, his skating, his ability to push tempo, his ability to get to the front of the net, his shot. There, there, are, there are some really great qualities to Paterka's game. The one problem I have with his game is that he doesn't have the kind of east-west vision, the kind of creativity that I'd, I'd hope for out of a sort of top six prospect. I, I don't think he's going to be the kind of player who's going to spend a lot of the game with the puck on his stick and really make everyone else revolve around him. He's going to be the kind of player that revolves around his line mates, helps them out, makes smart decisions, and really just attacks in waves and contributes with the odd goal and maybe plays on the second power play unit. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I felt like all of their picks after Paterka were a bit of a mixed bag as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you about them. Listen, I don't know. I can't imagine anybody knows all seven rounds of players, but the Sabres drafted a actually Buffalo Junior Sabre, Matteo uh -huh. Constantini, and then they also drafted two seventh-round guys, Albert Likason and Jacob Konechny. Is there anything you can tell us about those three? And if you can't, don't worry about it. 
Well, I, I don't like Jacob and Albert, if I'm being honest. I, I've seen both play a, a number of times, actually, and they were never really in consideration for that sort of top 10, top 100 ranking that I release at the, at the end of each season and, and this year released twice because it required an update once all of these kids got back in Europe and in, and in the QMJHL in recent weeks. But he was never really in the conversation, but neither of them were ever really on the com- in the conversation for me, if I'm being honest. I wouldn't have taken either... They both have interesting qualities, but again, yeah, not not a huge fan. Matteo is interesting, though. Costatini, not just because he's a Buffalo Junior Sabres player, and that's kind of fun and neat, but he's heading to Penticton. He's got some skill. He can drive play. I like the way that he sort of drives play in the middle of the ice. He's got obvious skill as a creator and as a passer, but he can also get to the front of the net and finish off plays. And he's not the biggest kid in the world, but there's, there's some real sort of raw talent there. And he's going to be a project. He's going to Penticton in the BCHL and then he'll go the college route. So it's going to be three or four years before you really know what you have in Costatini. But I thought other than the Paterka pick, like in, in that, in the, that next trio of picks that he was the most interesting of the bunch. That's fair. And as, as we look at the whole Sabres organization, I know it's pretty bare to begin with, so do you consider Quinn and Paterka jumping up immediately to two and three behind Dylan Cousins? I'm not sure how much you know about the Sabres prospects, but... Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I really like Eric Patillo and, and Uko Pekka-Lukanen. I think they're both two of the sort of top 15 goalie prospects in the world right now. Uko Pekka-Lukanen's probably in that 7 to 10 range for me, uh, and then Portillo kind of in that 11 to 15 range, if you will. Um, so they're in that mix as well, but I think, uh, yes, you're right. After Dylan Cousins, it's, it's, it's p- certainly Paterka's kind of in that next group and Jack Quinn's a bit clear number two. And that, that's probably your one, two, three at this point. Um, which honestly is, is despite how much I love Dylan Cousins, he was my top ranked prospect when I released my top 50 drafted prospects ranking this summer. And I'll have an update to that list to include all of the top 2020 kids next week i'm just putting the finishing touches on it but um as good as dylan cousins is who i think is fabulous i think he's going to be an excellent dominant 2c who can play behind jack eichel and give you real depth um as good as he is having sort of paterka and quinn as your two three is probably about an average pool at the top can i i you you can tell me to hold off till the article comes out but i know you're including all these guys is cousins still top five he is not. Oh, damn it. That, All right. that, that just speaks to the strength of this draft. He is top 10. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, well, we're looking forward to that article, Scott, and we really appreciate you making time for us and looking forward to your work in the future. Cheers. Alrighty then. Big thanks to Scott Wheeler for his insight on the draft. Now let's head it over to Derek Lalonde, assistant coach of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Here we go. Thunder. We now welcome on SUNY Cortland graduate and current assistant coach of the 2020 Stanley Cup champion Tampa Bay Lightning, Derek Lalonde. Derek, thank you for joining us. And has that new title sunk in yet? How does it feel to be a champion? It had that had a really nice ring to it, uh, Cortland. Tampa Bay, Stanley Cup, all in one sentence. Oh. That, that sounds really good. I like it. And let's go back to the Cortland days, Derek. I know you're a Brasher Falls, New York native. I had to look up uh, that little town on a map. And, wow, talk <laughs> about upstate. Um, right across the Champlain River where I spend my summers in Vermont. But I do want to go back to the Cortland days here. That's how we made this connection uh, you graduated, you know, a, a, a wee bit before we did, but <laughs> you're a phys ed, you were a phys ed grad just like we were. So before we talk about your time as a student athlete, how'd you like the phys ed pro- program and were you a big Dr. Malmberg fan? I'm, I was, I was, I loved uh, the phys ed program in reality even though I graduated high school at 17, you know, probably having it all over again. I went right from high school hockey to Cortland, you know, probably could have went the prep school route or even play some junior hockey, which you see the roster today, you know, most of Cortland's roster comes from 20, 21 year old, 20 year old freshman that played junior. So I was a little green, very immature, but I 
wanted Cortland because of the phys ed program. I had a huge vision of just being a physical education teacher and parlaying that maybe into being a high school hockey coach. And without much direction as a 17-year-old anywhere else in my life, I actually did have some career direction, and that's why I chose Cortland. I'm very glad I did. Yeah, and you graduated in 95, and I see you really didn't start your coaching career up until 03, so I did want to ask, I see you got your master's in administration um, from Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts after you graduated from Cortland, so I was curious to ask what you did between the years of 96 and 2003. Yeah, I coached all the way, so that whatever, you're probably, whatever hockey website, hockey DB, whatever, no, I started coaching right out of Cortland, that M Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts was a graduate assistant, so, you know, basically, probably a little more common back then, I went there. I was the assistant ice hockey coach. They were in Division Three league. Unfortunately, they uh, are no longer. They no longer exist. They folded. But I went there to get my masters, um, and I started coaching. I was able to get my masters paid for, and I got a masters of education administration. Just kind of want to build on that physical education degree. If I was going to go down the gym teacher, physical education teacher slash hockey coach, maybe in run down the administrative route. And then uh, Al McCormick, who was obviously my coach at Cortland State, took over a program at Lebanon Valley College. So I went with him as an assistant coach there. And then I kind of, I would say, a little bit of a crossroads where, you know, I wanted to start making a real living. Um, and that was going to be, I still had that vision of being a physical education teacher uh, slash hockey coach. But Phil Grady had called me from Hamilton College and I spent two years there, and Phil basically said, I've moved some assistant coaches on to the Division One level. Uh, he thought with my pedigree he could do the same. So I spent two years at Hamilton College, and then the real, or probably got the fortunate, where I was going to start coaching for a living, I heard from Ferris State University. Uh, when we were in Cortland, Hamilton, we would do a lot of recruiting that Ottawa, Toronto area, obviously where my proximity where I lived, I knew that area a little bit, and I got to know those Cortland guys a little bit. Uh, Jeff Blaschel, who was the current head coach of the Detroit Red Wings, had left Ferris. There was an opening. They called me up, and that was my really first time full Division One full-time coaching experience, and obviously that was kind of the start of my career, and I was going to coach the rest of my career. Yeah, and Coach, I'd like to dive into that. And first, I'd also like to say thank you for correcting it from gym to physical education. We certainly appreciate that. But, uh, I take a lot of pride in that, no doubt about absolutely. that. Absolutely. But I love looking back at your career, a total no-shortcut route. You went from Ferris State, 03 to 06, University of Denver, from 06 to 2007, where you assisted the Pioneers to some really strong years. And where things get really interesting for you is in 2011, you assume uh, the role of head coach for the Green Bay Gamblers. I love all these names of these teams you coached at, the Green Bay ga <laughs> Gamblers. Um, and were pre they were previously coached by John Cooper. I know Eric Rudd held it down for a year in between, but is this where you and uh, Coach John Cooper establish your relationship? No, I, you know, I pr we actually established in my time at Fair State. He was actually uh, just starting coaching midget hockey in the Detroit area. And obviously being, we loved recruiting out of the Detroit area. Um, if you had some dirt on your nails and you were from Detroit, we wanted you at Ferris. That's kind of how we competed with the Michigan and Michigan States of the world. And got to know him through there and, um, it just seemed like whenever the bar was closing on a recruiting trip, uh, about two in the morning, it ended up being him and I. <laughs> I love so it. we ended up uh, we ended up establishing a little relationship there. Uh, and then when he started his junior career, uh, we built a, a little trust. We were nabbing some of his recruits. We loved everything about uh, him and what he was, and I became good friends with him. And uh, actually, the first time John Cooper left. He kind of put the job on a platter for me. The ownership group of Green Bay called me, and I was literally, it was late August. I just had my third child, my daughter, Abby. We were literally vacationing in Vail, out in uh, Colorado, and school started like two days later. And I, I 
I wussed out and I said no at the time. And I was so disappointed. I knew I needed to become a head coach. There was no better route than cutting your teeth in the United States Hockey League. All that year, I was kicking myself a little bit. And I just uh, got a little fortunate. Eric Root actually went back to the college route. They made that phone call again. This time, I didn't screw it up. I was all on board, literally, from them calling me in the morning. By dinner time, uh, we had a contract figured out. And I became the head coach of... Uh, the Green Bay Gamblers, we had a ton of success. And, and then the pro route probably ended up uh, – I never really thought pro hockey. Uh, we'd won a national championship in Green Bay. If there was a head Division One coaching position open when I was in Green Bay, I probably had heard from the AD. Uh, and I'm not saying I wanted to be selective because I know how hard Division One jobs are, but I was – kind of sitting on a program that would be a fit and where I think I could be successful out. And then out of nowhere, the Detroit Red Wings called and the assistant general manager, Ryan Martin, basically said, hey, hockey has changed. Uh, we're in a salary cap era. We need to start taking our ECHL team uh, real. Uh, you need to develop guys. We're making a change. There's just something you'd be interested in. And I literally... I never even considered the pro route. I never thought about it. I didn't know a whole lot about the ECHL. And then uh, I started doing some homework on it. Basically, after the seven, eight contracts I was going to get from the Red Wings, it was my team. And I had some general manager experience in Green Bay. When you're a Division One assistant coach, you're a GM because you're filling that roster with guys. And they told me I would have an open-door policy to Mike Babcock in Detroit as much as I wanted to learn from him and I jumped at it and then uh, the rest was history I had a ton of success there the phone kept ringing and you talk about the journey every job I'd ever taken it was never about the end product it was never about how much money was the next job it was never about the next league it was always about what could challenge me and make me grow and it's just amazing and, and I know it sounds very cliche like but it's been true and it's just, it just, I was, I've told, been told many a time, just be really good at the job you're at. And I've done that and have just luckily just kept climbing up this ladder. And it ultimately landed me a Stanley Cup uh, last week, uh, which is still <laughs> surreal for me. Yeah. And before we get into the Toledo Walleye, another great name, I, you, you mentioned the quick about John Cooper. So I would be remiss if I did not tell you this quick, quick story about three and a half years ago. The NHL Combine's in town in Buffalo, and I'm out at the nicest restaurant I've ever been at, Buffalo Chop House. And then after, me and my now fiancé went across the street to Soho and went upstairs, and we knew the bartender. We thought we'd be the only people there, but John Cooper and one of his assistants, I think the Syracuse coach at the time, were up there hanging out. And he talked to me, pulled up a bar chair next to me, and was asking me about my first year of teaching that I just finished. <laughs> and I took a picture with him, and from that point on, I've become, you know, the Lightning had become my second team because John Cooper couldn't have been any nicer. We talked for like 30 minutes. That's real. That's probably how him and I established a relationship. Um, it's funny, the Chop House is a guaranteed stop whenever we go there. There's probably, <laughs> you know, every city we go to, we love that place. Um it's, uh, it's a little good luck for us, but we love it's one of the top restaurants, and you name it. I don't care if we're in L.A., I don't care if we're in this city, that city. Uh, the staff, they would be top three for us, the Chop House. But that's Coach Cooper. Um, you can see I have the same relationship with him. Just for you know, he kind of, everywhere I had, I had went, um, I would just roll in and be like, hey, you know Cortland State. It's a small Ivy school in central New York. <laughs> And my first year, uh, Ryan Callahan and Coop called me out on it. And, you know, Callahan, Callie being from Rochester, he goes, oh, I had a lot of friends that went to Cortland. And he kind of gave me the look of the certain clientele Cortland may attract. Um, and then from that day on, uh, Cortland's a punchline in our office, but oh, I couldn't be any prouder of that. We're talking about Cortland all the time. It's funny you said that about the Chop House, too, because I remember John Cooper told me the same exact thing, how it's his favorite spot. And the Ranger staff was actually in the Chop House. We sat right next to him. So, yeah, I'm sure it's very popular around the NHL circuit.
But I just want to get back to your career quickly because when you were hired by the Toledo Walleye and the ECHL in 2014, the prior year, to put it nicely, the team, it was not very good. They went 21-44. and 44. You get there as the head coach, and in the first season, the team goes 50-15. and 15. You Follow that up by going 47-22 and 22 in the 15-16 season, which gets you to the AHL hired by the Iowa Wild. Um, so talk about that transition in that period of time. Well, that, in some ways, that attracted me to the spot. I know when they had called Toledo, the Red Wings had called, and I started looking into it. I I'd actually I would follow some of their games, and I would catch a Sunday night game, and they were in last place, literally 30 points out of a playoff spot, and they had 7,000 people at the game. And I, it really intrigued me uh, from a business standpoint. It was very similar to Green Bay, where it was owned by the community. So you weren't going to nickel dime. We were going to be able to treat our guys the right way. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So I rolled in there and I used my experience and my recruiting. I just I knew that pool of the players coming out of college, coming up, ready to turn pro. And I just went out and nailed character if you were the captain of your college team if you're the captain of your chl team uh if you were a character guy still looking to prolong your pro hockey um i i sold them on what how we could turn this around we kept one player from the previous team and i know i know it was very some very tough conversations but we did it it was magical and I laugh all the time. We made the playoffs for the first time there. And we played Wheeling. There's another, the oh, Wheeling yeah, Nailers. There's another Nailers. name to add on to your list. We played game seven at home versus the Wheeling Nailers. And we had 3,100 people at the game. Um, and the reason why I remember that, because we get into the second round, we play the Fort Wayne Comets. And we played game seven at home. And we sold the building out at about 8,000. And then we get to the conference finals. Uh, we play South Carolina Stingrays in the finals. Not only did we sell the building at 8,000, they had two jumbotrons of thousands of people watching outside. Oh my goodness. And just to be part of that experience and turning something around, uh, I'll never forget it, and it's grown me a lot. And uh, I know Toledo, whether it's their media, whether it's um, – they're, they're anybody within their media assist, uh, associated with the media there, they always reach out. Uh, Toledo will always be a special place for me. This is so great. Coach, I actually want to touch on two things you were talking about earlier with Buckets. Number one, you mentioned the Chop House being a good luck spot. I'm pretty sure with the way the Sabres have been the past few years, if a team just happened to roll <laughs> through Mighty Taco, they consider that their good luck spot. But number two, you mentioned you had an um, open-door policy with Coach Mike ba uh, Babcock, and Maybe just because the way he left Toronto, but there seems to be a bad taste in the mouth of those that have been around him lately. How was your relationship with Mike Babcock? I loved it. I uh, Mike is a really good coach. Um, I think Mike saw maybe a little bit of me in him, in that here I am, just the ECHL coach, but anytime I want to come to a practice, anytime I want to go uh, watch what he was doing, his process, he involved me hands-on in their training camp. Uh, and there was unbelievable growth. And then after my first year, Jeff Blaschel took over. I had a pre-existing relationship with Jeff Blaschel. I, I must have went to 25 Red Wing games that year where I would just I would go, I would sit in with them for the meetings. I would watch him present the meetings. I would watch the first two periods, and I would be in my bed in Toledo by 1030. Just having that open-door policy, the growth is – I can't even tell you how much I grew. But for me – being around Mike Babcock, it was my first experience being around someone at the top of the profession. And it really hit home. You know, he didn't have time for fluff, uh, but he's he seen it all already. But he needed, he had time if you were going to make me better or him better. Mm -hmm. uh, he's an outstanding coach. I don't know the day-to-day -day and, and, and what's happened in Toronto. In this day and age of the media, it can be very right. vicious uh, to people. But he grew me immensely, and, and I'll always thank him for it. All right, Coach, let's talk about this past year. Obviously a magical ride. I want to know, first off, is it cliche to say that you guys learned a lot from last year's upset in the playoffs to Columbus, or did that really fuel this year's team, especially having to play them again? I think there was some growth in it. One, it's just a style of play. 
Um, you know, I, I always said that regular season, we still did win 62 games. We're one of only three teams in history to win over 60 games. We tied an NHL record when we won 62 games. I always thought I would appreciate that down the road, but it was, it was different than playoff hockey. And I'm not saying that loss was predictable, but we ran into a really tough opponent. Um, we knew we got really fortunate that we didn't have a single injury throughout the entire season. Sure enough, Antron Strawman goes down. We lose uh, Victor Hedman in the series. And before you know it, um, you, it was one of the first times you could look at our lineup and look at their lineup. But, God, Columbus might be better than us. But it was our approach. And as a coach, it was very rewarding that we made some adjustments to our D zone. We made some adjustments to be a little more predictable in our breakout habits. We made some more adjustments to our neutral zone play. And it was all about being a little bit more responsible and to watch our guys buy in. And then to, I'll still remember the meeting we had with our management team, Julian Brisbane, which sits us down in LA and basically was like, okay, what do you, I didn't make a move last year. I feel like I let you down. We're going to make moves this year. Let's talk. And we talked about building a third line and almost to the uh, defensive depth. We need defensive depth and almost to a T, literally to the player we had talked and asked for. To see him turn it around in the next three weeks to a month was just amazing. Uh, it energized us. But to, uh, for us for as a group to go out and do it, it was very rewarding so I would say, yes, there was a ton of growth from what happened in the playoffs last year to this year. And as a coach, to see it come around and to see the buy-in from the guys and to see the way they played, um, it was extremely re- rewarding uh, to, to, to win the Stanley Cup, especially the way we did. Yeah, and let's build off talking about building the complete team here. I just During some research, I read about – um, this one guy talking about how reckless um, the Lightning were at the trade deadline and how dumb they were giving away two first-round picks for <laughs> bottom six guys like Gaudreau and Blake Coleman. How dumb does that guy look? Talk about how those guys, along with a guy like Pat Maroon, just a sandpaper bottom six guy that won it last year, what did those guys add to the locker room, especially in the playoffs? Well, those guys are animals. And, and to the credit of our management group, when we were bringing up players – and they made it very clear, like, you know, we want a player A, we want a player B, and they're like, you know, we're not going to have rentals. Then we want player C, and they're like, okay, Barkley Goudreau we would have for two years. Blake Coleman we would have for two years. So, again, just vision of our management team, a great job. But those guys were absolutely animals. And not having Stamkos was a, was a kick in the gut. I think it was, a, it, was, it was helpful that we knew he was out early, but I remember I, I, I presented the very first team meeting. We, we would have our, uh, our last team meeting would be about 5.15 or an hour and a half before the 7 o'clock game. And on that game, I was tasked on the team meeting. And it's just NHL is a different, uh, tough now. You're not going to fight. There's not a whole lot of that. Uh, but I, but I, one of my moments in that meeting was I talked about we are going to hit – uh, Jones and Warinsky, every chance we get, and when you hit them, you're going to hit them to hurt them. And I don't mean p- take their legs out, or, of course, anything like that. But when you hit them, you're going to hit them, and you're going to mean it. And then I get back in the room, and I'm like, God damn, Coop, was I a little too much with the hit to hurt? And he goes, he goes, absolutely not. Coleman and Goudreau's eyes lit up. <laughs> so it just goes to show the mentality and the approach and those guys. I think Blake Coleman broke a record for hits in a series, and a, you oh. just need that. And, and I think in a lot of series, we wore teams down, and you know it's just rewarding for an approach that was a formula to beat us a, pre, a, a year earlier. We turned around and did that to, to other teams. I love that. And, Coach, I also saw this moron tweet that, and I think the light, some of the Lightning players tweeted back at him, but say something like, you know, th- this year the playoff, because there's no travel, it doesn't have the same feeling to it or, um, I guess, importance, and it'll be looked at differently. 
I just can't imagine how difficult it was actually being in the bubble and how wrong that guy was. So as a coach even, can you just speak to what it was like being away from your family that long and the monotonous day-to-day of only having hockey and being isolated like that? It was challenging, and it was. I think we did a really good job. Um, I know our sports psychologist made the trip with us. He was valuable there. You know, there was moments we knew guys were going to have up and down days. As a staff, we knew there was going to be up and down games, days, and you kind of had that feel, um, and you kind of gave people some space. And, you know, it's such a unique situation. And even me over, over the pause, you know, we were going through those ups and downs. What's this even going to look like? It's going to be a real playoff. And one thing really got me, I caught Aaron Ward, who's won a Stanley Cup with Carolina. Mm-hmm. And he started that. He started saying, "Whoever wins this cup, the mental, the physical, what it's going to do to you, this will be the hardest Stanley Cup in the history ever." And for to, to hear that from a former Stanley Cup winner, it started to change the narrative for me. And then once we got in that bubble, to and that was kind of the narrative you were hearing nonstop, and to hear it from our commissioner when he handed out the cup, and to know what we went through day in and day out. Um, I, I, I was appreciating it in the process, and you're grinding in the process. But after the fact, and to hear it from every team we got eliminated from, that we eliminated, and every team that you hear from after, uh, you know, it's easy in this day and age to throw anything out there. But and again, I've only been this is my second time in the NHL playoffs. But to hear it from people that have won it, to hear it from people that have lived it, that this was the hardest Stanley Cup ever. Uh, it, it just makes it even that much more rewarding. Yeah, and it makes you feel that much worse for the Stars, but screw them. They stole the cup from the Sabres in 99. <laughs> but anyway, you know, Coach, the the amount of talent in that room between Hedman, Vasilevsky, Kucherov, Point, don't get me started on the fact that no one put in an offer sheet for Braden Point, so they got him on such a deal that is infuriating as a, um, a fan of another team. But was – was it's kind of felt like a team of destiny, especially after that five overtime win that had to have been a huge monkey off the back after that Columbus series. Was there a feeling of maybe because this, you know, the flat cap looming and all the contracts like we talked about that it was it was this year or bust? Was there any added pressure on that? No, I, I don't feel like I still think we have a window. Obviously, it's going to be a crazy couple of weeks for us, and we're going to change as a team, and, and we're ready for it as a staff, and we're going to coach whatever team they they field us for next year and we still think we're going to have a window where we can win but I, I think there was obviously whenever you are in a window and and we are in a window right now there's just that pressure especially coming off what happened last year and drawing Columbus ended up being a blessing but at first like obviously we match up very well versus Toronto we were very comfortable we were going to be Toronto and if we were going to be Toronto they were not going to take as much flesh with them as Columbus was. And our guys, it was true mental hurdle winning that first five overtime game. I mean, we did our job. We pumped the guys up. We were talking about wanting Columbus, and this this is just full circle. But it was human nature. Not only, this Columbus is just flat out a good team. Uh, not only is the Dubois kid up front one of the best in the world, but mm-hmm. our analytics team, everything I see – as a defensive pair, Wawinski or Jones are the best in the world, and by far. And the fact that they play half the game, you're, you're literally just facing an opponent where they have the two best defensemen in the world for half the game. That's quite an obstacle to get over. So the fact we did it and the way we did it, there was huge momentum from that, and it certainly did lead us to our run uh, in the playoffs. Absolutely, and you mentioned your window being open for a couple of years. First of all, as a Sabres fan, I hope that's not true because I could tell you future Sabre Yanni Gord has a great uh, ring to it, no offense. <laughs> but um, I also, I also want to know, going to next year, how do you prepare for something that you don't even know when the season's going to start? How is this offseason going to look different? Yeah, you, you know what, for us, I, I have more. I'm more sensitive under, and, and feel bad for the teams that haven't played for a while. Um, you know, we were fortunate enough. And another thing, our general manager, he, he told us all along, we will be playing again. And he installed some confidence in us, and I believed him just the way he constantly kept hounding us. So that pause was um, 
productive for us as a staff. And I think we were ready. We cleaned up some things that we wanted to. We addressed some things that we wanted to. So personally, I hope the season doesn't start anytime soon. Um, I want to get back. I've, I'm, I'm in my mind. I'm the reigning father of the year with <laughs> with pickups and drop offs with all sporting events. It's yep. it's literally me and all the Catholic school moms <laughs> for the next uh, three months. Here we have our coffee. We talk about about the other husbands. Like it's awesome. Like I'm truly a Mister Mom here. Uh, I want this time. Um, so I, I think as the once we get a realistic, this is going to be the day we'll start focusing on. Our process, obviously, we'll have a better idea of what our team will look like, but not really concerned about it. I think we got a jump start uh, on a lot of these other teams simply because our our season went so long. And my final question, Coach, and I'll throw it back to Buckets. Talk about the emotional lift of Stamkos coming in for that one period, scoring the goal. You know what? It was. It's funny, you know, watching on TV how it sounds like every goal that's scored is from a road team because all you can hear is the bench going nuts. But that was by far the loudest I've heard a bench throughout the playoffs. Talk about the emotion on the bench when that puck went in. You honestly couldn't have scripted it any better. Absolutely. And just just a little bit, a little insight on the process. We didn't expect Stephen at all, and then all of a sudden. He started coming around. He started to be like, God, I'm feeling pretty good. He goes, you know, then he started pushing. I was like, I think I can play. And to his credit, uh, we put him, Jeff Halper and I put him through some, some ace of skates that I wouldn't put on anyone. And he went through them. He fought through them. And he was probably ready the day prior, the game prior. And he was pushing for it. And as a staff, we wanted to be a little bit conservative because uh, what we did not want to happen, and especially our forwards, if you guys recall, if you, I don't know how close you watched playoffs, but we were very comfortable playing 11 and 7. Yep. It just helped our lineup. It, we got, it, it was able to get Shen and, and keep some, some, some guys in the lineup that we wanted to, to help protect us, police us, maybe add a little intimidation, uh, and it came from that 7th D-man. Uh, but we had to go to 12 forwards because we were getting tired. The worst thing that could happen is Stammer could go out there and only play a couple minutes, and then we were short-handed on the bench. So we were being very cautious as a staff, and sure enough, he comes out, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, he only gives us five shifts, two minutes, but the momentum he gave us in that goal was unbelievably uplifting. If you recall, it was the only blowout of the the, the yep. series, and it, was, it wasn't only that gave us a 2 nothing lead. Dallas also had a little pushback. They took it to us a little bit at the end of the first but we came back, and we absolutely were a train in the second period. It was the most dominant period we had played in years. And we, we got a 5-1 lead, and there was no doubt it was the buzz in that room and the momentum from Stammer coming back and getting that room. So you honestly couldn't have scripted it any better. So, Coach, i got to ask you, i got two quick things for you. I love those NHL commercials where they ask, you know, your thoughts on just winning the Stanley Cup. I got to ask you, from Brasher Falls to Cortland to some time in Massachusetts to Hamilton to Ferris State to Denver to Green Bay, uh, the list goes on and on, to Toledo to Iowa to Tampa Bay, I, what was the thoughts running through your head and just emotionally how can you describe lifting and, and holding a Stanley Cup? Yeah, and again, I'm going to go back to uh, it's never been about the end product, and this end product happens to be a Stanley Cup. Uh, unbelievably rewarding. I know I had a text exchange, we call it the Benders, and it had about 20 to 25 of my college teammates from different eras. Tom Cranfield, who's an oh, assistant AD at Cortland now, who was, um, I, I played with early in my career at Cortland, was on it. And then I had an exchange with probably eight or ten of my best friends from Brazier Falls, and they were shocked. Because once, once that 5.30, 5.15 meeting, like our job's done. Like that hour beforehand, I'm literally looking for things to do. You're, it's the worst hour in hockey. And I would literally be texting. They knew a stammer or a point we were in before anyone. And to be able to experience that and then to have a couple pitchers in the locker room to send that to them uh, made it even more rewarding. So – Probably hasn't completely sunk in uh, right now with the journey because the journey never felt that long. It was always about 
just the next job, and it was always such an excitement on the next job. So, like now, I'll be living in the present, looking forward to coaching next year and being the best I can be. Coach, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you taking time out of your day to join us. I know we kept you longer than we asked, so thank you so much. Two last things to, to leave you with. Simon Tucky, our good friend who's a Lightning fan and Cortland alum, wants to congratulate you. And Buckets and Dan want to say that if you want to – you mentioned those uh, quote-unquote recruiting trips that you'd end up at 2 in the morning with John Cooper. If you ever want to have a recruiting trip <laughs> up in Buffalo or back at Cortland, the first round's on us. We'll always pay for a champion. So thank you so much. Two plugs for you. One, when I was in Cortland – I was a Woodman's Pub guy. Yeah. Actually loved it. We still have a million Woodman Pubs. The younger guys, after we left, they were more the dark horse. They, oh, yeah, they like chasing women around. <laughs> All we cared about was our buddies and the beer in front of us at Woodman's. Um, and two, the only team I've ever been absolutely passionate about that I love is the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, baby. And uh, the, the excitement. I, my one kid has actually hung in there with me. And we took a beating from the rest of our family. My wife's from Cleveland. We lived in Green Bay. No one wanted to jump on the bandwagon with us. And we're loving it right now. I'm excited on where that organization is right now. And I got two things. Simon had a quick message for you. He says that uh, you have a buddy who went to Cortland but helps you guys with the alt, kind of their video thing, Nigel Kerwan. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, Nigel's, Yeah, he's our video coordinator right now, unbelievable human. He's actually been here from the get-go. This is actually his second Stanley Cup. And then my last thing is just another quick Cortland story from you, for you. One day, Dan and I went to uh, Binghamton because Rochester was playing there, and we sat in front of Lindy Ruff, which was really, really cool. And we, after the game, or maybe we didn't see Lindy that time, but we hung out and waited for a guy named Chad Cassidy who had some Cortland ties, and he was all about telling us to get to Woody's that night too. That must have been the spot back in Chad. the day. That was Chad was my obviously my Cortland teammate. We were best men in each other's wedding. Uh, yes, and he was one of those guys in that the Benders. The fact he's been the Rochester head coach and the career he's had also um, love it. Yeah, we loved our um, we loved our Woodman's Pub. That was our spot for sure. Coach, this has been awesome. We really appreciate it, and congrats again. Thanks, guys. Anytime. Alrighty then. Buckets, before we wrap up, let's drop a couple of our normal segments that we do each week. So, unfortunately, there's no Bills preview right now. Hopefully, we can scramble for one if they do have a game on Monday. Otherwise, we'll be we'll be saying something for next week's Thursday night game. But we'll see about that. Let's talk about our fantasy fling. Last week, I had Kenyon Drake, who let me down once again. Three and a half points on just 35 rushing yards. I also had Daniel Jones versus what I thought was Philadelphia. It turned out to be the Rams, <laughs> and he stunk. They even scored a touchdown in about 28 years, so that was not a great pick either. Bill nailed his. Yeah, it's Singletary who had a good game, and this week we're going to Mike Davis. Listen, not saying Christian McCaffrey's overrated, but what I'm saying is the Carolina Panthers do a good job of getting their running back in space. Mike Davis is a good enough player to get you good fantasy points, and I'm – and I'm going to segue that right into my game of the week. Probably not everyone's game of the week, but I want to see Atlanta and Carolina. I'll tell you why. Carolina's turning heads, playing good football at 2-2 two and two with Teddy Bridgewater and a rookie coach. No one saw it coming, especially with McCaffrey on the IR. On the other side, I think it's Dan, Quinn, it's Dan Quinn's final game. I got Carolina winning that game and Dan Quinn getting fired on Monday. My fantasy fling of the week is going to be Deshaun Watson. I think he's going to be playing. I think that team is going to be playing inspired football now that Bill O'Brien's out of there. Seemed to be very hostile toward the end. I think that's a lot on one guy's plate. I don't think he should have been named GM anyway. Feel kind of bad for him. But he's out. They got the just the ultimate grandpa in right now. He'll be the oldest head coach to ever coach a game, Bill. Did you know that? I did. Romeo Cornell. So that'll be exciting. My game of the week is going to be... Hey, yeah, this slate of games stinks. I'm going to go Colts-Browns. Another Browns week where you want to see if they can put it together. Colts are actually one of, like, two teams that actually have a good defense. So that'll be interesting to see how yeah, Cleveland, very good game. Cleveland does against them. So I'm going Colts-Browns. And Thursday night football prediction, Buccaneers at Bears. 27-23 in favor of Tampa Bay. 26-20 Tampa Bay. 
Buggets, it was a pleasure. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and review on whatever platform you are currently listening on. Thank you to Buffalo Fanatics and One Before I Die for giving us the platform to speak and being partner podcast. I hope everyone has a great week. Hopefully we hear from us again before the weekend ends so we can discuss the Bills' upcoming game versus the Titans. Love you, Mom. I know.